killed diamonds. We've killed long lunches. We've killed mayonnaise. Soon, we'll kill the Conservative Party. Or will we? My name is Marie LeConte and I'm a millennial. My generation has been accused of destroying all the things that make life worth living. We're now being accused of not voting Tory despite reaching the age where we should be doing so. If we do not head rightwards anytime soon, the party may disappear altogether. What's happening to us? Are we really a unique generation? What are we doing to electoral politics? Here with me today in the bunker to discuss this is Professor Bobby Duffy, Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Marie. You wrote a book on generational divides, which is quite literally called The Generation Divide. What made you look into this topic in the first place? I think it was recognising that so much of our generational discussion is about conflict and even war between generations. When you look at the framing of how generations are discussed, it's always it's almost always in those terms, one against the other, particularly everyone hating boomers or everyone hating millennials as the kind of main protagonists in this. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was trying to explore what those divides really are um, because so much of it is fake. But underlying that, there are some really important generational differences and divides in the end. Mm. So in the introduction to the book, you say that the one sentence summary is, I quote, generational thinking is a truly big idea that has been horribly corrupted by terrible stereotypes and cliches. Um, So could you explain what you mean in the first half of that sentence? Why do generations actually matter? Yeah, they're hugely important in in how societies change and uh, reshape themselves. It is uh, some of the biggest thinkers in philosophy and sociology put generational difference at the, right at the heart of societal development. So French philosopher Auguste Comte uh, effectively said that generations are probably the key determinant of the speed of generational change. And it's, it's partly because we get stuck in our ways once we get past a certain age. So society needs uh, uh, renovation from one generation to the next, as, as he said. So we've got these really big ideas about life and death and societal change. But then it, what we've done with generational thinking is turn it into millennials are killing the napkin industry or whatever <laughs> else it is that, that they're killing, which is a real shame. So they do, they do matter uh, because our formative years are, are really important in shaping our worldview. Generations are, are constantly developing and they are a key driver of societal change overall. Hmm. For, for the record, I'd like to say that I'm actually, I say neither here nor there on napkins, but um, so on actually what you were talking about. So you quote in the book, uh, sociologist Karl Mannheim, hmm. um, on the fact that generations are a social identity formed by common experiences and that rapid technological and social advances can reinforce that. Um, so I'm a bit biased because hmm. I wrote a book on how different generations treat the internet. But so do you think online culture and the internet in general can be blamed for at least a portion of this narrative of kind of generational warfare? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a couple of really important points here, is it? That firstly, denigrating young people is an absolute constant of human history. Um, we, we always think the current generation of young are uniquely weird or wrong. But what that kind of social media and technology allowed us to do is is to denigrate them at scale. And it puts it into an information environment where division and conflict are rewarded because those types of comments and discussions travel further um, and faster. So it it is definitely the case that millennials bore the brunt of a lot of this because they were coming of age into their young adult years, uh, just as that type of media, that information environment was uh, taking off. I mean, what's really important to recognise as well, though, is that Mannheim was talking more about technology in terms of the means of production 
that young people in when he was writing around uh, the turn of the 20th century the speed of technological development was really important for them because things were moving on fast and old skills were no, no longer as valuable so young people had more power uh, because they understood those uh, new technologies and that still applies today but it's kind of it's much more the the, the big picture on generations is much more those big economic and cultural things not not who understands the latest tiktok uh, uh, trend or, or whatever it is it's those really big things that shape life chances that uh, Mannheim was interested in oh, that yeah no that's really interesting I never thought about it that way of yeah it, it is true that technically we should have the upper hand in many ways but um mm. yeah economically we just do not but actually yeah. so tied to this and kind of looking at the discourse around the different generations at the moment so this may be a somewhat leading question so <laughs> are the woke snowflakes really at war with the angry gammons or do you think that perhaps there's a slight <laughs> chance that it's more complicated than that Yes, it is a bit more complicated. And it is these these handy little terms that we've got of snowflakes and, and gammons, that is a reflection of that type of um, discourse that we've got now. If you've got one group at one end and, and one group at the other, um, when the vast majority of people are in the middle and, and intergenerational connection is still hugely important to us. And it's, uh, you know, we've got much stronger connections up and down the generations than we have across them in many ways because through our families and, and love and connection yes it is more complicated uh, than that and one of the biggest trends that's really not noticed enough in the UK is how we've drifted apart physically as generations so that we have sorted young people into cities and large towns and older people outside them in a quite extraordinary way we think it's quite natural but it's actually only in the past 30 years that we've had that type of division so we've got less contact between the generations physically and then we've also got a digital environment that separates it's that separation that fuels the stereotyping that leads to this sense of one tribe against another in terms of those types of terms so it's really again those big trends of separation generational separation that has driven a lot of this sense of um, not understanding the other side or stereotyping the other side. Mm. Yeah, so anecdotally, that reminds me of, so I used to live in quite a trendy part of sort of like quite central East London. Mm. And I do remember sort of like leaving that and moving a bit further away in quite a boring neighbourhood and thinking, oh God, children and old people exist. And but I was generally like, because I had spent years and years in a neighbourhood where somehow everyone was between 18 and 35. So I think that's something you've written about before, which I find really interesting is that there's a number of areas on which actually people do kind of agree with one another. So I think mm. the one you mentioned is that old people do actually care about the environment and that there's a really weird sort of narrative of, you know, old people just want the planet to burn and Gen Z will mm. save it. But that's actually not the case at all. There's actually a lot of agreement among mm. the age groups, right? That's right. Yeah, no, that's it's one of the most destructive generational stereotypes of thing that we have because it is you see it everywhere in all sorts of discussions so when Greta Thunberg was made person of the year by Time magazine in 2019 they called her a, a standard bearer in a generational battle between old and young and you're, you're like mm. that's just not held up when you look at the survey data on concern about the environment there's a few percentage point differences between the oldest and youngest on how serious they see environmental issues or climate change there just isn't that that gap um, and it's destructive in the sense that exactly the opposite of what we need is to send this sense of division on that type of issue mm. well so then i guess slightly unhelpfully what are what are issues on which actually there are big generational divides because i think 
gender identity seems to be a big one at the moment because mm. it's in the news a lot. But like, is there anything else on which actually no, like younger and older people do just disagree entirely? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's sort of on the cultural debate. So there was there's a pattern that the youngest generation are always around twice as likely to be comfortable with whatever the emerging social trend is at a particular time. So if you go back to the 1980s, baby boomers were the younger generation. They were uh, twice as comfortable with the idea that women should go to work uh, than the pre-war generation, their parents and grandparents. And the, but then if you roll it forward to the 2020s um, and you change the issue to something like whether we should be proud of the British Empire or gender identity, and Gen Z are around twice as likely to be comfortable with the more progressive view of whichever issue you're discussing. And that's that's kind of a, like a constant pattern throughout the different periods that have looked at the data. So there's there's not actually a massive sea change in the gap between old and young. The issues change, but the gap has remained um, more or less um, the same. So you're always going to get these differences on cultural issues on the more economic side there are differences there and it is it is around things like housing which has been s- such a core of the different economic outcomes the worst economic outcomes that uh, younger generations have had uh, where they're just much more open to and, and wanting more action on house building and um, uh, help for house ownership but also better regulation of uh, uh, private rented housing there's a few proper crunchy economic issues where younger generations are different and and they're the ones that should be focused on whether the cultural ones are actually nothing special but can be used as a wedge issue between old and young So what I find really interesting is that all of what you've just said makes sense, but then that pattern does not match at all with what's happening in electoral politics at the mm. moment, because it is absolutely the case right now that there's a massive generational divide there. So with mm. all the bit about, you know, seven young people backing Labour <laughs> and all the bit about seven older people backing the Tories. So what's going on there? It is unprecedented generational age based generational gap in voting intention between incredibly older conservative vote and much younger uh, Labour vote. And the, the conservative vote has always had a decent generational hierarchy built into it, where it was older generations supporting the conservatives, younger generations less, and then younger generations would slowly get a bit more conservative as they age. But there was always still, still this cohort-based gap. What's completely new is the Labour vote having this really, really steep age divide. I mean, it feels like that's always been the case. But prior to 2015, around 2015, there was no age gradient in Labour's vote all the way back to 1983, which is when the first data that we had. Um, started. So this is completely new. And the reasons for this are, are, are both economic and cultural. I would argue, because a lot of the economic decisions have gone against younger generations, undeniably. But then the choices that have been made by governments have gone against them. Then it's evolved and morphed into other issues that boil down into this woke, anti-woke type framing. So we've done both of those things. We've, We've given a really tough economic deal and then we've put cultural change much more at the centre of our politics, which guarantees an age divide in uh, our politics. But is that why as well? Because I think, um, and then you made that point and I felt very silly actually because I'd never quite realised it. But, um, but, but, you know, I, I think if we're only talking about young people becoming overwhelmingly left-wing, 
that misses quite a lot of the picture, which is that also like old people did not used to be that overwhelmingly Tory either. So mm. it's very much like two sides there. So do you mm. think that the cultural side and the kind of probably Brexit, post-Brexit sort of hangover explains the fact that older people are now like Torier than ever? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a dynamic that goes on here where it's um, when you get these, I think age divides in politics are really potentially destructive because it, it gives one side a sense that demography is on their side and they just have to sit back and wait and they'll have increasing voting come to them. It makes the other side think the same in some ways, but then get even more irate and desperate to pull their their base towards them by emphasizing the risks of the other side. Um, mm. So I think the fervency of that older vote, which is true, is the highest you know, proportions of baby boomers in the pre-war generation that are, are, view themselves as conservative supporters, is, is a really important part of this dynamic too. This isn't just about millennials killing something. It is about this whole generational spectrum of um, very, very entirely different views between that older pre-war generation and, and then even below millennials, Gen Z are even more rejectionist of that uh, mm. conservative offer right now and even more supportive of Labour. And that's really risky, I think. It's a very unusual um, thing to divide people on so comprehensively uh, age as a characteristic like in this particular case politics kind of is a zero-sum game in mm. that you know they're, they're trying so hard to hold on to their older voter base because they really need to you know have some people voting mm. for them but the more they do that the more they are actually actively turning off younger voters so like how how do you get out of that i mean i, I suspect there is not an easy answer otherwise uh, they would be doing it right now but but is, is there something they could do to kind of escape from that vicious cycle yeah no that's exactly it yeah i think that's that describes it really really well is it is a vicious cycle and it is incredibly difficult to get out of and you do feel that there is a need for complete reinvention or mm. reconnection for the conservative party to that younger age group it's not going to just happen with little tweaks here and there um having said that some of the analysis talking about this being the the death of the political life cycle is also not true. Um, these rules in politics, uh, these patterns tend to reinforce themselves and politics is such an unpredictable mix of age period and cohort effects in terms of um, outcomes. It's impossible to say that that is now gone for good. And so I think with a different offer, you could see how millennials and Gen Z could be pulled back into that more normal current of a, a life cycle effect uh, over time but it, it's not going to happen soon and it's not going to happen without a big change it's yeah i mean what i find sort of oddly maddening as someone who's um, been covering politics for a while is that actually if you really think about what the tories could do it's effectively just reinvent david cameron and cameronism so it's a mm. bit like the last 12 years of you know didn't really happen or need to yeah. happen again like, time is a flat circle and nothing matters um anyway <laughs> <laughs> moving on i'm doing fine um but so i guess again so like looking historically so why actually did past generations go more tory with age so thinking about the post-war generation and the boomers so were there specific events or points that made entire generation switch or was it more about personal circumstances for those individual people? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's sort of, it's it's such a heady mix politics of these three effects that describe all change, which, you know, there's a life cycle effect. Uh, but then you also have um, cohort effects where, you know, a generation is different. It was brought up in a different sort of time. And then you've got period effects where something happens and that affects everyone and changes things. And politics is the biggest blend, the most complex blend of those three effects that in any of the areas that I look at. So that is 
the reality of what's happened over these times. It's going to be a blend and, and mix of those different types of effects. But life cycle effects were pretty solid and did go for a long time through that post-war period where you would just see this pattern of people just drifting towards conservatism. And it's really very understandable because it, you know, it goes back to the Mannheim and other people's points about how we get to a certain point in life and uh, you, you start to change less, you start to be uh, less adaptable. And that does point towards uh, that more traditionalist view of society. And so it's completely understandable that that, will, that that has been a pattern and that it will, like, in all likelihood, reinforce itself again uh, in the future once we get past this uh, pretty unusual period that we're in now. Mm. So is this, I mean, and I'm always wary of trying to find sort of like easy fixes uh, for stuff in politics. But um, so is this also maybe a case that generally just childcare and housing hmm. are, you know, are shafting the Tories more than anything else? And actually, like quite a lot of people thinking about quite a lot of my peers, even if they could just buy quite a nice house and have their two kids and, you know, a car, maybe two cars, let, you know, let's go nuts, would actually probably, you know, sort of become again Tory in that nearly apolitical way. Because I think that's what the Conservative Party is normally quite good at, right? Of like turning people into Tories without them identifying yeah. as Tories. So is that, is that, you know, if someone had a magic wand and could fix both housing and childcare, do you think that would sort of change everything? Or is it, again, a bit more complicated than that? I think, I mean, I do think that, that those types of issues are right at the core of this, and particularly housing, from my perspective, um, on just looking at uh, there doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be a solution to generational intergenerational connection without that solution to housing, um, because it's just so at the heart of so much of life chances and uh, wealth generation and feelings of independence and, and just it's just shaping people's lives in entirely different ways just looking looking at the charts about how people have been deflected from expected life courses just because the housing market is broken and and i do think childcare hugely important too and as well and i, I so yes i do i think there are very practical things to do and I, and I am surprised that there hasn't been more concerted effort to have a comprehensive uh, approach to housing policy that looks at it all from private rented, social rented and um, uh, ownership point of view, because it's such an obvious thing to do. And, and it's not even creating that sense of conservatism that helps the conservatives. It's just allowing people to follow a life course that results in that quite naturally because your priorities do change but it's being completely blocked right now for large proportions of the population i have to say as well that look that is not unique to the uk and any government that was going through this period would have struggled with lots of this because you, you see we the book is international in scope so it's looking across lots of different countries on these economic measures and that sense of a loss of faith in a better future for younger generations is quite prevalent across lots of Western, more developed um, countries where you get more people now saying that they think the future for young people is going to be worse rather than better compared to back in the 2000s where more people said it was going to be better rather than worse. So we, we've got this general global decline in sense of uh, the automatic generation on generation progress that we'd got used to uh, mm -hmm. post-war.
So actually, so I, I was going to bring that up. So I think taking a broader look, so this kind of generational split, is it is it really replicated elsewhere? Because I know so in the yeah. US, young people are way more likely to be voting uh, for the Democrats, but old people are actually not that overwhelmingly likely to be Republicans. And even on the other side of that, so, you know, I'm French and I find it really striking that actually quite a, a generally like quite significant minority of my age cohort votes for the National Front, or like the Rassemblement National, as they're called these days. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, in France, for example, it is not the case that, you know, all, all young French people have gone super, super left. A lot of them have gone for the far right instead. Um, and, you know, the US quite complicated, etc. So what, yeah, what was going on elsewhere? Like, how does Britain compare, um, I guess, to other, especially Western countries? Yeah, we're quite an extreme example of lots of the patterns that you see. There's one really important point about this type of generational analysis and it's kind of I always you always say um, that we should be looking at country before cohort which is not a very snappy way of saying it but it's it effectively means that quite often the cultural context and the national context outweighs the generational context um, when Mannheim for example was was coming was looking at generational differences he, he only really thought about generations in a in a national sense he wasn't really thinking cross country that you would expect to see similar patterns in generations across countries because it was quite a disconnected world then uh, and we've had a very particular type of context in the UK um, not least around um, Brexit the run-up and aftermath of Brexit, the political turmoil that we've seen. So we are quite different in many ways, and, and that's yeah, not even going into the, the economic factors that make us quite different and bind the curve in, in many aspects. So country context still matters hugely and will uh, push generations in different countries in very different directions, and we should expect that. That was fascinating. Thank you. I think we should probably do an entire other podcast on that. Um, but in the meantime, Bobby Duffy, thank you so much. No problem. That was great. Thanks, Bree. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte, and thanks for joining me in the bunker. Bunker was presented by Marie LeConte. Produced by Kasia Tomashevich. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieber, lead producers Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme music by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.